Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it great to see uh, the rain? Everybody walks in with a smile on their face, and nobody's complaining about too much rain because we'll take all we can get. It's a great day. Well, as we do get started this morning, I want to ask you to do me a favor and uh, think in your mind's eye about an experience you had where you uh, had uh, both fear and excitement happening at the exact same time. Okay? I'm going to make up a word here, but let's call it expiritement. All right? Maybe it was, uh, I know summer's coming up, some of you will go to a theme park and a roller coaster would be an example of that. You're going up, fearful, but excited, right? If you've ever been river rafting, that's a similar experience where you're just kind of floating along, meandering down the river, but up ahead you see the class 5 rapids, expiritement, right? Well, I can think of a time for me that I had that experience when I was uh, at Fort Lone Tree, not Fort Lone Tree, New Life Ranch. Uh, for family camp at the ropes course. How many of y'all are going to New Life Ranch here pretty soon? Okay, so if you've been there before, you'll remember this. They call it the pamper pole, right? right you, see, you got fear right there. I saw Kate. He did this. And that's because what, this, what the pamper pole is, is basically a big telephone pole that looks like it's hundreds and thousands of feet in the air, especially when you're climbing to the top. Now, you're harnessed, and they promise complete safety, but you feel like you're on your own. You make your way up to the top of that pole, and then the goal is to stand on what feels like the size of a quarter. But you get up there and stand on top of the pamper pole and then jump out into midair to grab a trapeze. Exferitement, okay? It's that simultaneous emotion of absolute fear and absolute excitement happening at the same time. And here's what usually occurs when you have an experience like that. It's usually something that you'll never forget. Like I could tell you that story and, and I kind of get the willies inside just thinking about crawling up to the top of that pole. It, it just kind of imprints the memory on your brain when you have that experience of expiritement. And usually when you go to talk about it, you know, you, you're, it's like it's no big deal. Oh, it was awesome, you know. Were you scared? Nah, piece of cake. <laughs> you were scared to death. That's the honest truth, right? But our passage this morning, something I think very similar happens. It's an experience where that, that these people will remember for a lifetime, an event that they will pass down from one generation to the other. You see, the Israelites in our passage have been wandering around in the wilderness for some 40 years. Moses and his generation have now passed away, and it's time for God to do a new work among his people. So he calls Joshua to the front, and he tells Joshua, it's time. He says, I want you to be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, when he heard this, I think Joshua probably had some expiritement going on. It was a little bit of fear of what was coming, but the excitement that the day had finally arrived. And I expect that the people that he then pulled together, had a similar emotion when he called all the Israelites uh, together and tells them, okay, people, listen up. The day we've been waiting for is finally here. God has given us the, the green light to go into the promised land. And this is an event, as we will look at this morning, that these people will never forget. They will always remember it. It's a story that we will they will pass down from generation to generation, and we will even talk about even today. 
But I want to ask you to do me a favor as we walk through our passage this morning. I want you to think about how God has worked in your life in ways that you are thankful for. Ways that you have kind of put a marker in your life of God's uh, doing something significant for you or for your family. I want you to be thinking about that because at the end of our time this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity just to share how God has been faithful in your life as a testimony to who He is and giving glory and honor to, to His name. So I want you to be thinking about that as we go through our passage this morning. And before we look at it together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I'm thankful for uh, what exists for us today in Your Word to look at as a church body that has been preserved from generation after generation after generation to the point that we are uh, looking at a, uh, an event that happened thousands of years ago and talking about it even today. And I pray that as we do that, we would be reminded that there are significant events in our own lives, places where you have been so faithful to us, places that we need to have a memorial, a, a testimony of your goodness in our life in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. So I pray that both of those occur this morning, that we understand and, and appreciate the significance of what happens in our passage, but that we also relate it to the significance of what you've done in our life as well. And so that's our prayer this morning as we open up your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So if you're not already there, turn to Joshua chapter 3, and we're going to Look at this uh, fun passage together, uh, Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse 1. If you want to read along with me. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, he and all the sons of Israel uh, set out for Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. After, however, there shall be between you and it a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you, may not, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow... The Lord will do wonders among you. Okay, so this is a big day. I want you to get the emotion. There's a lot of expiritement going on inside the people of Israel. They've hiked about seven miles from that city that's named in our passage to the shores of the Jordan River. Uh, we learn later in our passage that the, the Jordan River is actually overflowing its banks during this time of year. And so it must have been an intimidating sight for them to see. Here they are on one side, and on the exact opposite side is the promised land, the place that they've been told they are going to go. But in between is this massive, overflowing, rapidly moving river. Last year during our backpacking trip, we had an experience that made me, made me, it made me think of that whenever I was considering this passage. We uh, decided to take a day hike up to a mountain lake, and on our way we crossed a a pretty good river stream. Um, one in that, you, it was very crossable if you walked on the stones that were kind of in the passage and just kind of took your time 
um, and didn't get in a hurry, you'd be okay. Now, if you slipped and fell into the river, that's a problem. But if you took your time, you're good. So we did. We took our time. We made our way across the river. We went up to the mountain lake, did some fishing and hiking, and we're having a great time. And before we know it, here comes a thunderstorm. I mean, in the mountains, you don't see them coming. And so once they're on top of you, it's done. You're in the middle of it. And sure enough, that's what happened. It's raining cats and dogs, much like we've had the last few days, praise God. But it's coming down. So we said, we've got to get down the mountain. It's not safe to be up here. So we make our way down the mountain, get back to the river we had crossed. Don't see those stones anymore. It has swollen, and that water is moving down the river like a freight train. There is no possible way to get across the river like we had done so originally. I want you to picture that in your mind because I think that's an image of what the Israelites were staring at on this day. Okay? It is a rapidly moving, like a freight train coming down before them. And as they look at that water, there is no possible way that they can get across. They were all camped next to the rapids. And yet they were being told by the leaders who were moving among the people, get ready. Because in three days, we're going to cross that river. Can you imagine what would be going through their minds as they're thinking, I don't think we are. There's no way we can get across that river. Now, we'll talk more about what's taking place with the Ark of the Covenant here in a little bit, but I want us to focus our attention on the instructions that have been given to the people by Joshua. This is going to be quite an undertaking. The scholars estimate that the Israelites numbered about 2 million at this time. So there are 2 million people gathered on the shores of the Jordan River waiting to get to the other side. Everyone is there with their families, with their belongings. And somehow, they're going to have to get across the rapids to the other side as they go into the promised land. Now, as you might expect, the the leaders are probably going to explain what needs to go on, right? They're going to give some details and logistics about how you get to the other side, how you move two miles... Two million people from one place to another. Lots of details. But that's not what happens in our passage. There's no explanation of logistics. There's no explanation of details. There's a simple instruction. Look again at verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Here's the instructions. Two million people get to the other side of the river. Consecrate yourselves. That's it. That's the only instructions that they give. Consecrate yourselves here they are fixing to cross a class five rapid right and when they get to the other side not to mention they are going to start an extensive military campaign to then take possession of the land that god had promised and the only instruction that they're given is consecrate yourselves nothing about sharpening your swords swim stroke what you need to pack for the trick trip I mean, none of those details. The only thing that he says is consecrate yourselves. Why? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua is leading the people to prepare their heart for what God is about to do. This is not about what they will accomplish in their own strength. This is what... God will do in spite of their limitations. So Joshua wants the people to consecrate themselves, which essentially is telling them to confess their weakness in order to appreciate the magnitude of God's strength. 
God is essentially telling them, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. For when you are weak, I'm strong. And so consecrate yourselves. I think that should be a good reminder for us as well. God seems to do His best work in our lives when we need Him most. And so perhaps one of the take-home messages that we have in our passage already is that we should probably spend less time planning and more time preparing our heart for what God might have in mind. To consecrate ourselves. To recognize how weak we are, but yet how strong He is when we put our trust in Him. That seems to be what's happening in our passage this morning. I think it's a good reminder for us as well. So let's see how they continue in verse 6. It says, And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall uh, moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Hivite and the Perizzite and the Girgashite and the Amorite and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. The people were first instructed to prepare their heart, and now they're being told where to, to fix their eyes. See, the ark of the covenant is what represents the presence of God among his people. Back in verse 4, if you want to take a look there, it says that that the Ark of the Covenant would be some 2,000 cubits, which is about 3,000 feet in front of the people. That's a pretty good distance, a little over half a mile. I think one of the reasons that that may be the case is because with 2 million people, you need to be able to have that thing way out in front so everybody can see because he tells them, you don't know where you're going. You've not been this way before. So in order to know your way, you've got to see the Ark of the Covenant. And then you move in that direction. God is saying to them, keep your eyes on me. Just make sure you keep your eyes on me. You've not been this way before. Keep your eyes on me. God is leading the way. Fix your eyes on him. Now, in verse 7, we read that the Lord tells Joshua that the upcoming miracle will validate him. He says specifically, uh, this day will begin to exalt you, exalt Joshua as the divinely appointed leader among the Israelites. 
But then if you'll go over to verse 9, when Joshua then turns to the people, he says, this is what God has said. And I want you to notice that he mentions absolutely nothing about that personal assurance given to him by God that he would be exalted among the people. It seems that Joshua, Joshua is more interested in being faithful than being famous. Instead of validating himself, what does he do? He puts the focus on God. And what does he tell them? He says, by this you will know that the living God is among you. And even that is significant. Why, why does he call him the living God? I think maybe it's because only a living God is alive and active in the world to carry out his purposes on earth. Only a living God has the capacity to be in a relationship with His people. Only a living God has compassion and affection on those whom He loves. And so even though the the Ark of the Covenant may represent God's presence among His people, Joshua wants the people to know it does not contain Him. He is a living God. And as he goes on to say at least two more times in our passage, the Lord of all the earth. It's so important for God's people to understand that God is not some impersonal force. That He doesn't remain distant and disconnected from His people. Our God is a living God who draws near to His people and lovingly leads them to salvation. Keep your eyes on Him. That's what's happening here. Now, it starts with consecration. As we look at our own heart and recognize our weakness and need for something stronger, something bigger, something God-sized. So then we turn our eyes on Him for a deliverance that we cannot accomplish on our own. This is where we find the Israelites as they're gathered on the shores of the Jordan River. So let's look at what happens next in verse 14. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying uh, the Ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. There's that rapidly moving river. And the waters which were flowing down, and let me just say, like a freight train, from above stood up and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So you kind of get the scene here. Lots of expiritement going on. They said it's time. We're going to cross the river. They explain, keep your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. It represents the presence of God. Our eyes need to be fixed on Him. The priests do as they're told. They 
dipped their feet into the water. And it says the water stood in a heap. It actually says that the water stopped flowing a great distance away. That city that, uh, that is referenced in our passage is about 17 miles from where they would have been crossing the river. So there is a big swath of land that is now available for them to cross, which is important because there's 2 million people that need to get from one side to the other. That is a significant part of what God is doing in this event. But as I've pictured this in my mind, I, I think the, the water standing up in a heap is obviously a pretty big deal. That's an amazing miracle, right? But I don't think it's the most impressive part of the miracle. And let me tell you why. Actually, the river has been temporarily dammed up and stopped flowing at least two other times in history that we have recorded, both because of natural disasters, earthquakes. One of them occurred in 1267, and the river stopped flowing for about 10 hours. Another one occurred in uh, 1927, and during that time, the river stopped flowing for about 21 hours. But in this event, the one we see in our passage this morning, we have the perfect timing that was fully anticipated and took place just as God's Word said it would. And unlike any other time in history, in my mind, the biggest part of the miracle is what's repeated twice. They moved across on dry ground. Instantly. Dry ground. How many of you have ever been in an area that's been saturated with water? We wouldn't be able to talk about that until this weekend around here, right? But if you've been across a, a playa lake that's been underwater or a riverbed that the, the waters have receded in and it's been underwater for a long period of time, you know that when you step in it, your foot sinks down and it's like the earth has a suction grip on your foot, right? <laughs> to get one foot out and the other one going. I mean, it's almost impossible to move across. And so you can imagine what an absolute disaster it would have been to try to move two million people across a boggy mess like that. So in my mind, the, the miracle of the water standing in the heap is significant. But I think the dry ground is the most impressive part of what God did that day. And I wonder, as I thought about this passage, do you think they appreciated the significance of that part of the miracle? You think they realized how important that was? I mean, really, the most exciting part was definitely the water standing in a heap. And so I wonder if it was possible for them to be so captivated by the amazing that they missed the mundane, the ground they were walking on. And I wonder for us if we're not guilty of the same. We are so drawn to the spectacular, and I wonder sometimes, if we miss out on the everyday miracles that God performs in our life just as faithfully. Not only that, when we do recognize what God has done, isn't it amazing how forgetful we can be? <laughs> when God does something significant and it's so impressive to us and then over time it just, it just fades. And that's why I think Joshua does what he does next. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about when the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, 
from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men who had, he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And thus the sons of Israel did did as uh, Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they, were, they are all, all there to this day. As soon as they uh, crossed the Jordan, while the miracle was still fresh in their mind, God instructs Joshua on what to do to memorialize this occasion. He's appointed 12 men, and he says specifically one from each tribe of Israel, to go back where the priests were standing in the middle of the Jordan and to take up stones that were obviously big enough that they had to carry them on their shoulder and then take them back to the shore there where they would lodge that night. So why one from each tribe? Because really all they needed was 12 able-bodied men, right? You 12 guys, you look strong enough, go get 12 rocks and come back. But the instruction was very specific, wasn't it? 12 men, one from each tribe. And I think one of the reasons that's important is because these people are about to go into the promised land. And they're going to spread out over a big territory of land and they will each have their own section. And, And I believe God wants one person from each tribe to memorialize this day and carry that story forward into the land in which they will live. And again, like I said, notice that the the stones were big enough that they had to carry them on their shoulders. So I know when they built this memorial there where they were lodging that night, they intended that it stay there, that it would be there a while, that it would not be easily moved. But I want us to think about this for a second and just be honest about what we're seeing here. Because is it really possible that they're ever going to forget what happened this day? I mean, God's telling them to to build this memorial as if they're going to forget. How in the world would you ever forget water standing in the heap, the ground turning dry, two million people moving across? Do you really think they're going to sit around the campfire one day and go, oh yeah, I almost forgot about that, the day that the water stood in the heap. That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Is that really going to happen? I don't think so. But this memorial is not for them. This memorial is for the generations after them. Look again at verse 6. It says, Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the rivers of the Jordan were cut off. So the stone shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. 
this was not a, a memorial for this generation of Israelites. It was for the generations to come. It's not that we don't remember God's work in our life. It's just that we get lost in the routine of daily life and we just don't talk about it much anymore. We don't share that story from one generation to the next. God knows that. And so he's had them set this memorial up so they wouldn't fall into that trap. I read a recent study that revealed that 40%, now listen to this, this was significant to me, 40% of church-going Christian homes, so that's people just like you, okay, you were a part of this survey, 40% of you, it says, either never or rarely discussed spiritual matters in the context of their home. Parents either rarely or never, 40%, rarely or never discuss spiritual matters in the context of their home. Now, is God doing a, a work in their life? I'm certain He is. Absolutely. Are parents talking about it with their kids? 40% of the time, apparently not. Now, they probably hear stories from a pastor, right? <laughs> here on Sunday morning or from student ministry, they hear that. But most kids in Christian homes, or many kids, are not hearing it from their own parents. And so go back to verse 6 again, and I want you to notice something very significant. Look at the question in verse 6. When your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? That's important. Not, what do these stones mean? Why are these stones here? The question is, what do these stones mean to you, Dad? To you, Mom, Grandmother, Grandfather, uncle, and What do these stones mean to you? You see what's happening here. There, this is a personal testimony of God's work in their life. Because here's another important part about this memorial that God's told them to set up. Let me explain it this way. I'll go back to backpacking. You can tell i got that on my mind a lot lately. But when you go hiking... You go along a trail, every once in a while you'll see a stack of rocks that obviously look like they've been there purposely. And they are. It's called a cairn. Okay? C-A-I-R-N. Cairn. And the reason they're there is typically when things might get confusing. Okay? So if you're walking along the trail, and let's say there's a game trail where animals are traveling, and so it looks like the main trail, but it's really not. So what they'll do is they'll put a, a cairn on the main trail so you know this is the right track. Not this one, this one. Okay? You might see it in a meadow where in certain parts of the year it gets real, the, the grass might cover up uh, where the trail is and you kind of get, it's easy to lose your way. And so you'll look and you'll find a cairn. And that cairn is there to tell you that this is the right path. I think in, in many ways that's what's happening in our passage this morning. What this memorial is, it's a marker. It's a cairn. So that when they talk about it, they discuss what it looks like when God is leading you down the right path. A marker to prompt them to, to tell the story of how God intervened in their life in a personal way. This is their story. And I think it's fair to say how they saved Him. How, they, how He saved them, right? This is what God did on the day that we could not have done on our own. Because here's the deal. We cannot expect to God, for God to be living and active in the lives of our kids if they don't understand that He's living and active in our life 
as well. This memorial was not for the people that experienced that miracle that day. It was for the generations to come. And so here in a little bit, I'm going to give you a chance, (laughs) again, to tell the story of God's faithfulness in your life of how he has done something for you personally. What do these stones mean to you? That's what God's wanting them to do. But before we do, I want to look at that very strange verse in our passage, verse 9. Okay? Let's look at that together. Verse 9 says, Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place of the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant and where they were standing, and they are there to this day. Now, I want to think about that. I, I understand the memorial where they are lodging, right? Take those stones, bring them up on the shore. They'll be visible. They'll be seen. They'll tell, you can tell the story of what these stones mean to you. They're like a marker of, of how God intervenes so that you know that you're on the right path. That all makes perfect sense to me. But these stones that Joshua sets up in the middle of the Jordan River, what's going to happen to them when the river turns back to normal height? They're going to disappear. You can't see them. They're under the water. But I wonder if they're under the water until there's a drought, until the waters recede to the point that now they become visible. And now there's a story to tell, the same one that's on the shore of the Jordan. And so in some ways, perhaps, the ones on the shore are for the everyday routine of life as you talk about how God is personally active in your family, and in your life personally. And the ones in the middle of the river are for those hard times where you need to be reminded that even in the midst of difficulty, God is still faithful. It's the same story. Just one in the routine of life and one through times that may be difficult. So I want you to listen to this. The same truth of what we have looked at in our passage this morning has its clearest revelation at the cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate memorial. It is the way that God has marked the path that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's his most definitive proof of his faithfulness, that he has drawn near, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If you believe that, then you need to be telling your story from one generation to the next. I do want to encourage you. uh, Every one of you should have a story. What does that stone mean to you? So, you've heard some of those this morning. But I would encourage you, if you didn't tell your story this morning, that you tell it at some point this week to your family. Dads, sit down with your kids. Tell them your story. Moms, do the same. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, pull in a neighbor. Tell them your story of God's faithfulness in your life because he's given us that opportunity because he saved us, right? He's delivered us. You've got a story to tell. And that's what this is all about. So I pray that you do that. Let's pray. If you will, go ahead and stand. God, thank you for your word. 
I thank you because you know that we are forgetful people. And that's why you instructed them to do what they did that day, that they experienced uh, something that they would never forget to, in their own mind, uh, but might forget to tell uh, the next generation. And that same thing applies to us as well. Uh, We are all here having experienced as a child of God a saving work of Jesus Christ in our life. We have a story to tell. And I pray that we are people who pass that down from one generation to the next. May we be the exception to the 40% who didn't have those discussions in their home and that we would be 100% faithful to telling our story to our kids, uh, to our uh, nephews, our nieces, to our generations to come, and for even our neighbors. Uh, Some of us will get together this weekend, Memorial Day, to be with people that we may not go to church with. I pray that we tell them our story. And may it be a story that glorifies you and your faithfulness in our life. We are grateful that we have a story to tell because of your work on our behalf, through your sacrifice of your Son on the cross. So, Father, it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have a story to tell. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have a great holiday weekend.